John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 197.jb2825 certificate number 47447 Henry Cavendish I remember growing up thinking that shy was kind of a personality type yeah and as a kid I think you're very aware of shyness because Unless you're like the one percentile most outgoing kid, you're you're shy in some ways, right? You're shy of new people or you're shy of adults. Were you shy? I feel like I was shy of grownups. I remember hiding behind some curtains in our living room one time because my parents had friends over and I did not want to be uh, on display. As far as m- my family's uh, like historiography goes, uh, I was not shy at all. My mom said that when I was a uh, uh, an infant or very, you know, toddler age child, I would try to meet the eyes of every person in the grocery store. And if one of them would meet my eyes, I would bat my eyelashes and, you know, try to get them to come over and a young Bill Clinton tickle me under the chin goes to Albertsons to woo all the moms always loved grownups. Um, I think if, if there's any place I was shy, it was with other kids. Uh, in in the sense of like, there's a group of kids playing over there. I have no idea how to approach them, how to behave. Yeah, I feel like when we talk about the tra- the just the foundational traumas of childhood, we always focus too much on the family. Like it really is just the the terror of what some other kid on the playground might do. Yeah, he might just. What if he just said something mean or or knocked you over for no reason? Like that's, that's more dangerous than almost you know for most of us than anything that could happen at home. So I think a lot of people, that's the, those are the foundational childhood experiences. I didn't relate to other little boys. You know, I would go try and talk to them. And I don't know if you remember all the way back to where your son was a little boy, but little boys don't want to talk. They want to do something. They want to make truck noises with their mouths. Yeah, they want to hit you, knock you down. So I would go try and talk to them and I was never successful until I figured out that the girls were my friends. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot easier. But, you know, that's its own kind of terror, too. <laughs> that, that continues to govern my life. I just feel like shyness now, I think of it as um, a symptom of, it could be any number of things. Like yeah. my my daughter has, you know, she was always a super outgoing kid that would just march up to any little any little kid on a playground and they'd be best friends in five minutes and then she'd cry on the car on the way home because she'd never see them again. But, you know, she kind of has a real anxiety about dealing with adults to the point that, like, she doesn't want to order in restaurants. She's like, you order for me. I don't want to have to choose, and I don't want to have to talk to the server, you know? Right. Um, she's pretty good with us. Oh, yeah. Like, she, you know, with she's if anything, she's overconfident with people she knows. Yeah. Um, but there's that, or there's, um, you know, just kind of an introvert, introvert kind of a personality. I mean, you and I might both have this to some degree where, you know, we can work a room, but that's not how we recharge. Yeah, that's right. Well, I feel like these days, or at least in the last 10 years, shyness has become almost a political designation, right? There are people who are, who are adults and identify as, as super shy, and that dictates you know, how they live their lives. 
who I, their friends well, are. Well, I'm okay with, you know, the extroverts have ran the culture for so long. Oh I think God. it's okay to have them be the uncool ones for a change for and to have sure. everybody online just jumping to be the first one to announce, you know what? Yeah. I'm actually, wait for it, an introvert. Yeah. <laughs> who would have guessed? That you didn't see that coming. <laughs> Extroverts suck. Uh, so there's that. And then there's, you know, just varying places on, you know, severe, maybe what our parents would have thought of as severe shyness, we now would diagnose as different locations on a spectrum right. of, of, of autism or similar behaviors. Right. Where, you know, there's actually something neurologically different about the way the person handles sociality and social cues. Right. I mean, it's why there is such a thing as a librarian. <laughs> Someone <laughs> has to sit in a quiet room far away. I- I've said this before, but when I worked in tech, I was just surrounded by people who had chosen a job where they would never have to see anyone. Yeah. Least of all a user of the thing they're working on, you know? What's interesting is that the, some of the most introverted people I know who formerly worked in offices before the pandemic, um, in conversation with them, I've, you know, I always kind of open with, boy, you must love the pandemic because you don't have to deal with people anymore. And I've heard multiple very shy, introverted people say, actually, I had plenty of solitude before because I made sure of it. My work life was the only place I interacted with people and I miss it. Right. Their ideal was not zero interaction. They had cleverly managed the kind and amount of interaction they wanted. Yeah. And then and now the just virus that, took it away. That little bit of like standing next to the microwave in the employee break room, it was enough to, or, you know, interacting with colleagues. Because I've been very lucky to have the pandemic privilege of just, you know, to live with some people I like. Right. And that kind of blunts it because they were most of the people I would see on a normal day, you know? Can you imagine, and I'm sure this is true for millions of people, they don't like their home. Right. They have a a bad dad or a bad roommate or a, you know, like a very, like an alcoholic mother or whatever. Or a a brick wall instead of a view. You know, they look forward to just, you know, decompressing for a few hours in a a bar or a club or a restaurant or a bookstore. Right. They have a cot in a, in a, in a single room oc- occupancy hotel, and this has been a nightmare. That's the place they retreat to for the least amount of time possible, and then this. Yeah, that's, uh, I do feel lucky about about that. Do you know people who are um, maybe performative or bordering on exhibitionistic in some professional field, but are kind of painfully shy in person? Oh, a lot. Yeah, that's not uncommon, right? Not, not at all. Musicians or I mean, are... in the early day, in the you know back when rock and roll was a very different thing. Um, you know, rock musicians and sex workers had a lot of overlap socially. And I knew a lot of, uh, women in their twenties that were making a living, you know, performatively as, as, um, you know, dancers or, or, um, other kind of burlesque performers. And a lot of them were not especially, uh, social but had figured out a way to uh, behind glass or on a stage, you know, be what you would, I mean, the, the most social, um, and exposed, but it, it did not, it did not convey to their, to who they were and what, what, you know, where they really lived. Well, they're just a Flintstone bird on a record player. Yeah, it's I mean, a living. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't come down off the stage and go like, let's go. <laughs> you know, they were very Who's much ready like, to party? put their hood up and, and went home. Is, um, so, you know, we all, I think we all know shy border anywhere from like quiet and, uh, prefers a small group of friends all the way to painfully shy. Mm -hmm. Um, as probably as far as you could push the envelope is one of the greatest scientists of his time, Henry Cavendish. Perhaps not coincidentally. Right? Like. Like yes. super far out on the wing and also one of the great scientists. Yeah, I mean, when, you, when you're playing the game of retroactively diagnosing different kinds of personality conditions, in this case, autism or Asperger's syndrome, um, you know, it, it's, always, it's always difficult to do on the basis of the evidence. Yeah. Um, you oh, know, when you read back in history. Right, what, you, these people who are trying to decide whether or not Thomas Jefferson, where he was on the autism spectrum or yeah. whatever. Because, you know, it's, it's difficult— you're judging by the standards of a different era. You have the conflicting reports of what other people said about them. Yeah. You didn't actually have diagnosticians doing any of this stuff. The recognition um, that my grandfather was 
probably bipolar explained a lot of things to my mom when I was diagnosed with bipolar. Um, we used to say or when I, when I admitted it, we used to say melancholy instead instead of critical clinical depression, manic depression. Yeah. He, he, he grappled with melancholy. Uh, and he did, you know, that was, that really characterized an aspect of her childhood and to put it into some kind of, but who knows, you know, who knows what, what motivated melancholy makes it seem like a mood. It's almost like a, a chosen vibe rather than, you know, our current language, which correctly identifies it as just a, a neurochemical physiological thing. Well, or it's one of the humors, right? He had too much, too much, uh, yellow bile, which is the, which is the humor of melancholy phlegm. Yeah, it's phlegm phlegmatic too right? much phlegm. Have these guys ever just thought of blowing their nose? The thing is, I, I, I identify as phlegmatic and, and I don't like it. I don't like to be phlegmy, but I just, I mean, you can hear it in my voice. I mean, none of the humor sound good. Right. That's true. I mean, is it good to have too much black bile? (laughs) Hey, good news. You have too much yellow bile. Uh, but this is a case where the retroactive, di- retroactive diagnoses, like those of some other scientists, as you were saying, it's not a coincidence. Often it's the greatest thinkers who, um, you know, the fact that they were thinking outside the box and not a typical person of their time is reflected in their intellect as well right. and, and their, uh, you know, their psyche. Um, Oliver Sacks, uh, of man who mistook his wife for a hat fame, seems relatively confident that uh, his, the Honorable Henry Cavendish was, is just textbook uh, autistic. And uh, his behavior makes it very clear. And he's not, you know, people say that about Isaac Newton. A lot of these people that just had difficulties with relationships and yet were just expanding the boundaries of of human knowledge. Right. Um, Cavendish was, this. by the way, this is a request of our uh, rockets, a NASA friend, uh, Neil, that we spoke to recently. Oh, yeah, Neil, a, a, a very accomplished young man. He loves... He, yeah, he, he works on uh, what ground telemetry for weather satellites. He said, right, but, but also he's thinking of getting out of it in order to get into indie film. Yeah, he's he's artistic, uh, but 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 uh, currently works for NASA on behalf of NOAA. Yes, NOAA is not allowed to do its own rockets anymore because they have been very naughty. Although they tried, that was the best part of the story. NOAA had its own rocket program for a while and couldn't make it work. I wonder why. It, it went so badly that now Congress makes. Noah outsource its launches to NASA. Anyway, Neil, you know, uh, Doctor Ca- uh, the Honorable Henry Cavendish, I guess, has been a, a hero and source of a fascination for our friend Neil. And he was afraid that um, Cavendish would not be eligible for Omnus because we recently covered the Cavendish banana. Right. Who is named for, I guess, the sixth, uh, what was their rank? Earl of sixth Cavendish? Or, Earl or of the- Baron? No, what are they? They are... Viscounts. <laughs> you have too much viscount. Your viscount is too viscous. Uh, he was the sixth duke. Is that right? That's the, pretty yes. high. He was the sixth duke of Devonshire. Oh, he's a big, uh, big wheel. And Henry Cavendish, in fact, was the grandson of the second duke of Devonshire. So if I'm, if my graph is right here, they were first cousins twice removed. So Henry Cavendish precedes yes by a, by a couple generations. The banana. Uh, and Henry Cavendish, you know, as you can imagine, by being the grandson of the second Duke of, of Devonshire, was the highest born British thinker of his time. You know, of all the intellectuals of that time, he, he wasn't just the leading thinker, but as we will see, um, he was far ahead of the curve there. And but what was his time and who were his peers? Uh, he was born in basically the 18th century. His dates are 1731 to 1810. So... All the great British scientists of that time, Robert Boyle, James right. Watt, the Royal Society, and his dad, in fact. Age Char- of Enlightenment. Enlightenment era, um, yes. And uh, his dad, Charles Cavendish, was a leading physicist of his generation. And so even though he's born an aristocrat, I mean, he's born in Nice uh. to aristocratic parents. How was his father ennobled? Uh, well, he the is- The first duke. His father was the second duke. Oh. Um, his father, William Cavendish, the first Duke of Devonshire. Oh, as you would expect for the time frame, you can probably do the math. Glorious Revolution. Oh, sure. Uh, he came was, back. The big comeback. Yes, he the was big a comeback. Whig politician from the House of Commons. Um. Oh, but his father was the Earl of Devonshire, so he was already from a noble family. But he, 
it was um, he got elevated. Yeah, it was his part in uh, inviting William and Mary to depose the Stuarts that got him his dukedom. Right. Is that the word? Dukedom. Yeah, yeah dukedom. Um, Dukeridge. So he Cavendish came from a super wealthy family. However, he did not see much of it through a combination of his um, parents or his dad's thriftiness and his own eccentricity. Uh, he spent most of his life living what is sometimes claimed to be a pretty impoverished lifestyle. Uh, he always wore the same kind of the, the suit that his grandparents would have worn, I think is what is often, uh, is what is often said. Yeah. But isn't this just the shabby chic of the super rich? Did he drive the same Volvo 240 for 15 years? I don't know if they had that then. I feel like the rich then really wanted to look rich. Mm-hmm. Do you think they had shabby chic? That's a that's a modern innovation of I think mass manufacturing making it possible for anybody to have crazy um, made in Vietnam bling. Well, it does feel though that this was also the era of the uh, of creating sort of a an idyllic village folly uh, on the the back forty of your you know there was a rusticity movement maybe not. Well, sure. I mean, I think it was beginning then, a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a taking great pleasure in in the idea of the simple, the noble savage. But I don't know. You're right. I don't know if that means that you would wear your great-grandfather's tweeds. Uh, yeah, I kind of doubt it. It seems yeah. That seems more like a hypothetical. Boy, wouldn't it be great just to wear deer skins and live in the woods? You know what? You could actually do that, your your lordship. Oh, uh, well, I don't. I'm not sure about that. Live in a shack on the uh, on the pond. Um, but you know, when you look at what his actual allowance was, he was getting 500 pounds a year. That's a lot. So, so despite the fact that people are saying he he always wore the same deeply out of fashion suit and lived in these converted stables that his uh that his dad said he could have for an apartment, he's also getting the equivalent of fifty thousand dollars today. Yeah. So maybe by his family standards, he's living a weirdly ascetic lifestyle. Right. Um, but, but that's only by aristocratic standards. You know, in, in, in an age with a healthy middle class, he would be he would be doing just fine. He's fine. And, uh, but you know, his his only social outlet was the Royal Society, which he his father was a member of, and which he joined in 1760. Um, and his, uh, there was the only thing his father would ever give him money for. His dad would give him five shillings for him to go attend the dinners of the Royal Society. Now, even though th- these were his only social, uh, uh, what, um, obligations. Yeah. His, his only social life at all. He was not uh, comfortable there either. This is a guy who his biographers have said were shy and bashful to a degree bordering on disease. Hmm. So even then they realized this is not just a quiet oddball. This is, um, you know, even an age before our modern understanding of mental health, these guys are like, this seems like a symptom of something physical. And the Royal society was a scientific gathering. Yeah. These are all natural philosophers and he was very respected there. But, um, but you know, people would try to talk to him and they would say it was talking as it were to vacancy. Yeah. Like you couldn't tell there was anything going on in his face. And if you were interesting enough, you would either get like a squeaky mumbled reply. Apparently he had a very high pitched voice or you would see an actual vacancy because he would scurry away to some part of the room where nobody was trying to talk to him. Right. Well, and this was an era when scientists were also expected to have theories and, and do, you know, be pen and ink artists and, Polymaths. Yeah, they're big talkers. This yeah. guy, this guy, you know, it would have been expected for him to be able to, you know, get up and give a speech. Right. Um, and that was not him at all. In fact, even at the Royal Society, his only, his only peer group, he would often be spotted just kind of loitering outside the room, trying to work up the, uh, work up the courage to actually go into a room with people in it. Right. Sounds like me at the, at my high school cotillion club. I feel like it sounds like anybody in high school. That sounds, I bet that's relatable to a lot of omnibus listeners. Um, there's a, uh, famous story of a visitor coming to, uh, I think, uh, the uh, fellow scientist and I think Royal Society president, if I remember right, Joseph Banks introduced Cavendish to an Austrian, uh, uh, thinker who admired his work. And the Austrian says, you know, I've come to London just to meet you, sir. I admire your this and your that and your experiments and blah, blah, blah. 
And Banks wrote, in reply, Cavendish answered not a word, but stood with his eyes cast down, quite abashed and confounded. At last, spying an opening in the crowd, he darted through with all the speed of which he was master, nor did he stop until he reached his carriage, which drove him directly home. <laughs> yes! So this guy is charting new ground what a hero. in the avoidance of social connection. Yeah. He could not talk to more than one person at a time, and that person could not be a woman. He was unable to uh, even stammer out a reply in the presence of a woman. Right. Um, kind of a, maybe an early Mike Pence type. He was, uh, you know, he wrote uh, notes to communicate with his household staff. Um, there's some famous story of, uh, I guess this is also a story of his um, cheapness and eccentricity, but uh, he's having some, you know, some scientists apparently are, are, are coming over. There's been, a, there's been three scientists coming over to collaborate with him on something. And his housekeeper sends him a note saying, well, the normal leg of mutton will not be enough, sir, for there's going to be four people. And he replied, by two. By two legs he, of muff- he was mutton. Not, he was not going to give everybody their own <laughs> leg of mutton. Um, well, but- it, it, it really makes you think. I mean, we, we think about people who, who were on the spectrum even 30 years ago, kind of suffering uh, from a, just a general ignorance of what their condition entails. Right. Like and, why? Why are you choosing to be weird like this? Right, and now there's we we understand at least at least somewhat. I mean, so much better, and are able to accommodate different you know scales of sociality. But imagine in the 18th century right. how difficult it would be when you're in a, a you know an aristocratic class where everybody is yeah. supposed to be breezy and self possessed. Yeah, what and a tragedy. You're, you're, and you were just having. You know, the wheels churn, like, how soon can I get out of here? But apparently, he did not, um, because of his mind, he he was interacting with the culture of science. He was not, he, he didn't just become a hermit, he... That must show his deep love of that science, that he would keep going to those Royal Society dinners he hated. Yeah. Just because he needed the the connection with other, the stream of ideas and the connection of other minds like his. So explain his work. Yeah, so his, um, oh, one more thing about, I, I have to get this in about the servants. Yes. He also, in order not to see his female housekeeper, he built a separate set of back stairs. To it his had, house. Had, had stairs built. Just so he would not have to see her. Shy Henry, they called him. But let's talk about his work. For most of the early period, the 1770s and the 1780s, uh, he was what is now, what was called at the time a pneumatic chemist, hmm. which hmm. makes him seem like, Mm-hmm. What the Michelin Man, or <laughs> just maybe a, a, a very buxom starlet, mm-hmm. but that's just what they called people interested in the chemistry of gases. And he did incredibly uh, groundbreaking work. Gases, you know, were not well understood. He was living in an era where you know people didn't know what oxygen or hydrogen were. You know, I still don't understand fully uh, <laughs> gases, but His, they they weren't being captured. Right, there was no jar of cyanide gas you couldn't, you couldn't see them so there was there was a discussion of what they actually you know what were these invisible things that you know that can sometimes catch fire is it right. phlogiston is it going in the ether what what is happening here it wasn't like a liquid or solid you could you could hold and do experiments on you know it took um but as you boiled it water it went mind. somewhere right so he actually did a lot of you know he did a lot of work on water his 1766 paper on factitious airs was uh a groundbreaking uh, experiment in which he applied acids to metal and produced something he called inflammable air. Uh, he had just discovered hydrogen. Huh. Um, and uh, he later dissolved alkali salts like lye or uh, potash or something in water, and it produced a different air, which he called fixed air. He had just discovered carbon dioxide. And he later went on to prove that what humans exhaled was largely this fixed air. Um, He, uh, having kind of figured out that air was apparently a mixture of these different kinds of things, he did a series of experiments to determine exactly what the ratios were and determined that there's about four times as much nitrogen as oxygen in air. And uh, he could not figure out when he got rid of the nitrogen and the oxygen and the water vapor and the carbon dioxide, all these things that he had kind of hypothetically decided were in the atmosphere, he could not make the math work out, and there was still some residue, and he could not figure out what was wrong. And it was not until, I think, over a century later 
that much more advanced chemistry was able to demonstrate the existence of the noble gas argon, right? Which is uh, present in Earth's atmosphere and you know trace conditions one part in you know four hundred thousand or something like that. Interesting that his math was so good that he could he could realize that it wasn't squaring. And he didn't just consider it a rounding error. Right. He's just, there's some residue that he can't find and it, it bugged him. Um, and as we'll see, you know, a lot of science at this period is just a matter of trying to figure out how to get instruments good enough to do meaningful work because right. you're, you know, you're working with what by modern standards are incredibly blunt, primitive instruments. Um, having discovered that air had a inflammable, you know, a, a very volatile flammable component, um, later named hydrogen, he learned that you could, if you burned that stuff, you would make water. Oh. So he was um, either the first or among the first, there's some controversy here, to realize that water was H2O, that there's you know two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, make water. Water is, has a phlogisted part, the oxygen, and an unphlogisted part. And this actually led to quite a bit of controversy because the same summer he was making these discoveries, James Watt was also doing similar experiments with, um, you know, burning hydrogen and, and oxygen together. And so there's a, it led to what is called the water controversy. And then a French um, pneumatic chemist, Antoine Lavoisier, was kind of making this um, grand unified theory of chemistry based on a lot of these new findings. And because he took that finding further and, you know, really uh, was the one who uh, visualize the structure of water and how that reaction works. Um, he often gets the credit for the discovery that water is H2O. The, you know, the ancients had thought it was just a, an element, a basic element that yeah. makes up the universe. And the idea that it might be made up of other things was the most groundbreaking, um, reimagining of science possible as late as the, the late 18th century. Was Cavendish in, in touch with these other scientists? Were, I mean, were they exchanging information? Yes. And, uh, but this, um, Especially the simultaneous discovery with Watts seems to have been a coincidence, and it led to what was called then, and especially in Victorian times when it was kind of revived among scientists, as the water controversy. Mm-hmm. Who was the first person to revise the ancients' idea that water was just one atomic, um, you know, unbreakable thing? We see this happen in science all the time, right? right. The, the two people working, or teams of people working. Different continents, even. Yeah, come up with the same... The telephone, I think, is two people like less than a week apart. It's just an accident of who gets to the patent office first. Right. The time sometimes is ready. Ken, I'm really proud of the Omnibus Patreon. I think it was a uh, it was f- uh, far sighted of us to 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 turn to Patreon to fund the show. It, it enabled us to leave our our formerly. Uh, draconian corporate masters that kept us uh, under their jack-heeled boot of their, their single boot of, of the, it was a it was a company that it was basically run by Captain Ahab they only had one boot and an ivory leg and the ivory leg was on me and the jack-heeled boot was on it was on you. me that's at, why i remember it more at all time i just think about that cold ivory leg on the small of my back we loved doing this show from the first episode we have such a good time doing it but for a long time it was hard to understand why we were doing <laughs> we it were, <laughs> we were afraid we were not going to be able to make it pay and then we would not be able to do the show yeah it was hard to i mean we continued to do it almost for no compensation for two years yeah that's testament to how much we enjoyed doing it but when we switched over to uh to patreon uh which is i think still kind of an undersung platform uh where an undersung way for artists to to find audiences to support them. Yeah, it really is. And it's a, and it's a fantastic way to, um, to fund something like an omnibus project, which is, which is a lot of work for us and a lot of, although really fun, uh, the Patreon enables us to connect with our audience a lot better. And we, we've kind of followed the model of having different tiers of membership and those different tiers produce, um, I mean, there, there are actually like, different rewards at the different tiers that some of them are, are, uh, are actual material items and, and real experiences. If you enjoy Omnibus on any level, but you haven't looked into the Patreon. I'm assuming that you do enjoy it. Here's a quick rundown. What if they're just listening to a show to fall asleep or, um, 
Even so, that's a kind of enjoyment. They're not native English speakers, so they don't even know I'm... Still enjoying it. Uh, I wish I could plug the Patreon in Portuguese. I think that would really help. I think that the Portuguese people listening to the show are going to be able to figure out what we're talking about. El Patreon. El Patron. El Patron. Wait a minute. That's a different thing. It's not a cigar or what is it, tequila? It's a tequila, but also, yeah, it's your patron. It's the Catherine de' Medici version or, or uh, variation on the theme. Except that it's not a small group of elite people making the kind of art they like possible. It's any kind of small niche of regular folks can toss in a few bucks and suddenly uh, an artist is a going concern indefinitely. That's right. And we're able now to make the omnibus program with a lot of confidence and enthusiasm that's not just because of our friendship and our interest in esoterica, but also it's a it's a craft industry for us. Some of the advantages of Patreon membership, in addition to the show keeps going, uh, would be the following. First of all, at the even at the very lowest donation tier, uh, five dollars a month, you receive a bonus episode of Omnibus every month. And it's a it's a it's a specific and hilarious version of Omnibus where we read letters from futurelings who have something more to add to our episodes. And then sometimes we accept their contribution. Sometimes we bat it down like a cat with a moth. Imagine a version of Omnibus that's actually both fun and fast-paced. Weird. And that's what you're missing out on with the monthly Addenda show. What's interesting about the Addenda show is we do get to the topic right away. We have to. Yeah. There's nothing but, there's nothing but to, it's, it's topic all topic. the way down. That's right. At the next level, uh, for $10 a month, you get the end of the show, but you also get access to a visual archive on the Patreon that includes things like uh, uh, weird artifacts that listeners have sent us. You and Mindy do a great job of taking pictures of all the weird stuff that we have and and um, curating it into an interesting little It's all Mindy. All the, and all the, the notes you and I work from on the shows, if you want to see what didn't make the cut... Or uh, which of us have legible handwriting? The answer is neither. Yeah. Ken's handwriting is more, I don't know, it's smaller. A lot smaller than mine. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm really proud of that. Yeah. I've really been working on that. Good work. As I get older, I'm trying to get my handwriting smaller and smaller. Yeah. Until, you get more words on the page. Yes. Until I die the very day that the, the width of my letters is zero pica. Uh, at the next level, you get all that, plus you get mailed to your address a copy of one of these show notes, autographed and personalized by the two of us. And at, that's at the $20 level? Yes. I mean, even there, we're talking about a couple hundred bucks a year. Less than is, you spend on Arby's. Absolutely. I think even the vegetarians listening probably spend more than $200 a year at Arby's. They do because of the delicious vegetarian options at Arby's. What do you get there when you're not eating meat? Arby's? Yeah. What do you get at Arby's when you're not eating meat? Oh, I, oh I'm always eating meat. So I only get Arby's meat So sandwiches. you've never tried the carrot and quinoa salad? Uh, uh, not at Arby's. Or the chickpea sandwich? I don't think I've tried that at the Arby's. falafel with barbecue sauce? Barbecue sauce. I don't actually Arby's, know what Arby's. the Arby's veggie options are. Hor- horsey sauce. They must be delicious. Horsey sauce salad. You can, get no. the, you can get the potato cakes. I don't like potatoes. Oh, right. Nope. I just get the meat, I get the meat sandwiches. Uh, but for just a dent in your Arby's budget, right. you could give it that level. And, uh, and you know, if you've given it that level in the past, one thing we decided to do this year, because we didn't know if people would want a second identical pair of assigned show notes, is we also have been tossing in assigned chick tract. Yeah, the assigned chick tracks are a lot of fun. We have a good time with those. <laughs> but these are real, you know, these are things that have, have, uh, have touched both our hands because we both signed them. Yeah, first, so let them, let them uh, sterilize for a few hours once you, they arrive at your home. Mine, typically, uh, some of them have coffee stains on them where I, where I put my cup. Ken often will spit up some Diet Dr. Pepper uh, when he laughs uproariously at one I, of my yeah, hilarious puns. I've got doodles. Yep. Oh, we both doodle. We both doodle. Not very well. Uh, at the higher, more aspirational levels, you can even, at the next level, you can get all of the above benefits, plus you can request... A show topic That's right. on the omnibus of your choice. Request slash recommend. So some of our some of our fifty dollar donors uh, really want a show done in their image. Some of them are really just trying to help and suggest things that that really do that wouldn't have come across our bow another way, but that that feel very right at home with us. Yeah, usually it's a collaborative process where. 
a listener will say, well, here are a few things I'm interested in. And we will, usually they'll just be right down the plate because they've heard the show before. Right. Nobody's like, hey, can you do a, a can you do a show about, um, about my mom's girdle? Right. Although, although we'd consider it. Although, uh, and so we can usually shape the topic into a great show. And we've done some, some of our favorite shows have been listener suggestions. Yeah, really good, really good. Uh, well, that's the thing about Futurelings. If you're a member of our Patreon, the assumption is that you are, yeah, you're invested in the show and you want to ha- have it be good. You understand the vernacular and the aesthetic and the culture of it. And then at the highest level of donation, we, Ken and I will actually, this is, it's almost embarrassing how available we are, but we will actually hop on a Zoom call with you. And we've had so many fun Zoom calls this year with, uh, with, I mean, you want to think that there's a kind of futureling, but there's not. <laughs> there's every kind of futureling. It has really been a, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a, a, a trip across the world, really, to chatting with all these people. Yep. Yep. Interesting characters and not a single one that, I mean, when we went into first doing zoom calls with, uh, with Patreon subscribers, we thought, oh boy, what's this going to be like? There's going to be a lot of real weirdos. Uh, and it turns out that was true, but they are us. We are usually the weirdos, <laughs> right. on the call. but they're super great. I, we've not had a bad one. So if any of those benefits seem compelling to you uh, and your budget allows, please join the uh, almost 2,000 currently Omnibus listeners who uh, help support the show every month on Patreon. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible to support us on Patreon and not want any of those benefits uh, and still feel like, yeah, I get a lot of enjoyment out of this show and I'm going to chip in a little bit of money because it's a, boy, I'm an evangelist for this style of supporting the things you love. I, I didn't understand it very well at first, but I see now that a lot of uh, creative people can turn their their thing that would otherwise kind of not be sustainable into something sustainable just because a, a handful of people like it enough to, to support it in this way. A record company or a TV network is not impressed by a little niche following, but so many cool artists are going to be able to you know, quit their day job right. because they have that niche following now. Us included. It's fantastic. I don't know. Ken, do you want to quit your day job if they get, if they let you host Jeopardy? It's unclear what my day job <laughs> is right now. So luckily all my uh, day jobs are like every few day jobs. Yeah. So, uh, Omnibus is in good hands for the future. Yeah. It's definitely sustaining me. And I, I, I've been, I've been emailing a lot of uh, musicians I know saying, Hey, I know you're struggling. You haven't been able to play any music this year. Um, you should try reaching out to your fans in this way. Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Cavendish, to the degree that he had any kind of uh, awareness of other people, felt like he had been treated unfairly in the water controversy. And he, uh, he, moved to, he decided to switch over to physics right around the mid-1780s, which is when he went from being... Um, an odd eccentric living in a stable to one of the richest men in England. <laughs> His father, Charles Cavendish, finally died, leaving him uh, just an insane fortune. At the time of his death, Cavendish was the biggest depositor in the Bank of England. Wow. I don't know. On, on reflection, maybe that doesn't mean he was the richest man in England, just the, the only eccentric that was keeping everything in a bank instead <laughs> right, the, the of— the one it, with cash. Investing in the—he the, wasn't investing in the East India Company or whatever. Yeah. Well, he, all those all those aristocrats are land-rich, but cash-poor, typically. Oh, that's true, yeah. Um, and he did spend—he did spend the cash on real estate, but mostly because he wanted more lab space. He was still cheap. He was still skimping on the mutton to guests and wearing the same old— um, hundred-year-old style suits, but he kept his old um, his old home near the British Museum, which I guess would be Bloomsbury, I think, mm. um, which visitors said was mostly just books and scientific apparatus. Uh, he bought a second home in Soho, which he basically turned into a lending library. That was all of his books, and he would lend them out to other scientists using a, a card catalog system of his own invention until... That got too unwieldy, and he had to hire a German to run his own lending library. That's cool. Uh, that is cool, right? Like, that's kind of a socially-minded thing for an, uh, a poster child of Asperger's to do for his community. Yeah, well, or, uh, or an aristocrat of any kind. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. At the time. Um, so this, this place in Soho becomes just a giant library, and he buys this giant house in Clapham, which is now kind of a you know, slightly run-down part of South London, but the time was kind of out in the country, um, where he bought this 
giant um, estate and again lived in a very tiny part of it and filled everything with his apparatuses as apparati and his experiments in in progress. Um, I imagine that being uh, being a pneumatic scientist involves a lot of glassware. I think it must. Yeah. And today we can just rely on getting precise glassware of every kind with the exact geometrically perfect shapes we need, um, all the measurements on them exactly right. At the time, these would all have been artisanal items that he would have had to oversee the creation of very carefully to get good results. And one place you can really see that is with his most famous experiment, which he performed at Clapham in 1783. It is uh, kind of generally called the Cavendish experiment, although he did not devise it. A scientist named um, John Mitchell, who is not well known, but is um, one of the most, basically the father of seismology. He he kind of uh, first devised and propagated the idea that earthquakes might be waves moving through stone. Um, there was a device called the torsion balance. Which in which a suspended uh, rod with weights on it would spin. And it was mostly used in electrical experiments to, um, to determine uh, electrostatic attraction between different things. You know, that you would have a capacitor that would pull something else toward it or something. Right. This John Mitchell uh, scientist had thought with a precise enough torsion balance, you could actually measure gravitation with it as well. Wow. And one thing well, you it would can, have to be large also. So that's what happens. You have um, on a twisting rod, you have two small lead balls, you know, that weigh maybe a pound or two. And then at different points along that radius, you have two very large, you know, like 300 pound lead balls. Um, and the they're whole, fixed. They're fixed. And the whole thing is calibrated precisely enough that. Uh, if you could let it spin and if you could observe with no other, uh, you know, with your own observations not getting in the way of it, that the actual, you know, we had Newton's second laws at this point. Mm-hmm. We knew that um, objects would attract each other relative to the square of their of their distance apart. You could, based on that, actually watch the small lead balls twist the rod toward the larger ones. Oh. And by doing so, you could measure gravity. Even though, you know, this is 1783 and people are still eating dirt. How, how long did the rod have to be? Uh, I've seen a picture of it. The rod is, I don't know, maybe a meter or so long. Oh, oh I see. So not... not... It, it's, it's not some giant Foucault's pendulum. Right. The problem is you can't have any movement of the air, including by the scientist making the observations. Right. Um, so... And, but there, there were vacuums present by this time, Right. Ooh, that's a good question. Scientists have access to vacuums. I, I think you would have needed more, even if you had the ability to, you know, you could you could definitely put a candle in a under a bell jar. You know, people knew about the phenomenon of vacuum, but I don't think you could produce one on the scale needed to do this experiment. Ah, uh, the rod is six feet. Oh, long. okay. So it's you know the height of a person, and uh, so you know this is a large. Set up, and he doesn't even in this giant house in Clapham, he doesn't have a place for it. So he builds a shed in his garden where he can build this giant suspended torsion balance. Because what he wants to do, you know, nobody at the time would have thought of it as, hey, I'm measuring the universal gravitational constant. What he was going to say is, I am going to measure the weight of the earth because you could measure proportionally the amount to which these this ball of a fixed mass is being drawn toward these larger ones. And then you could measure the amount by which that same ball is being drawn towards the earth because that's just weight. You know, right. by, by, by weighing how much that ball is pressing down due to gravity, that's the, that's the um, attraction between the earth and the little lead ball. So by judging the proportion between the, how much the, your little ball is attracted to this large weight and how much it's attracted to the, to the earth, you can calculate pretty precisely, Mitchell thought, the weight of the world. Wow. So the whole point of this experiment is to measure how much the Earth weighs. Yes. And, you know, this is the kind of, that's something that's easy for the layperson to grab a hold of. You know, that's, it's not that different than Eratosthenes putting a stick in the Sahara Desert in two different places and measuring the shadow and, and no, figuring out the size of the Earth. Right. Yeah, based on the curvature of the, the, the you know, the different, um, the angles of the two It was the more two than toothpicks that he put in them. 
sand. It's got to be something a little taller it than that. It was a little taller, yeah. Um, so this is something that became famous in the neighborhood for many years thereafter. Um, he, in order to not cause any air currents that would mess with his data, Cavendish actually, you know, built this closed shed. He would start the torsion balance and then close in this airtight environment. So it's not a vacuum, but it's, you know, there's no breeze. And he would leave the shed and observe through a, a telescope of his own devising, um, the degree to which the lar- the lead weights were attracted to each other in the balance. And he produced a measurement of the Earth's weight in, you know, in pounds. Right. You know, he now knows how many thousand billion pounds the Earth is or whatever. And it turns out his number was off by only like less than a percent. He, you know, w- within, uh, w- you know, within one percent, he came within... Uh, measuring effectively the mass of the earth. Still a hundred thousand million pounds. One percent. Yeah, he, he was, yeah, he was, yeah. he was way off. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but that's incredible. <laughs> yes. By the standards of the time, it was an amazingly successful experiment. And, you know, many things came out of it. Findings in geology came out of it. For example, the number was so much larger that people thought, you know, people knew the size of the earth going back to the ancients. So given the, uh, given the, the mass, you now know the density basically. And he had discovered that the earth must be metallic because his number demonstrated that there must be an iron nickel core or something of similar density. Oh, also a thing that wouldn't have been, wouldn't, there wouldn't have been anyone to know. How how else would you know? Yeah. And at this point it's purely theoretical. The earth is made of dirt. Clearly it's dirt all the way down. Um, not a hot iron core. And it was not, and a hundred years later, you know, building on his results, people were able to calculate the gravitational constant precisely. And, you know, he never would have thought of his work in that way, but he was effectively, you know, his experiment is isomorphic to computing what's the, what's the gravitational constant? How, how, how much does gravity pull on you? Are you asking me? No. Okay. (laughs) Um, Right. But he had to know that there was a, that there was an intellectual history and that his work was meant to contribute to it. It wasn't, he wasn't doing this work in isolation. He was, he was doing it to contribute. Well, his lending library is evidence. He was, he was doing this for future scientists. Yes. And he, and he cared about his peers and interested in their findings. But you know what? Like perhaps the most interesting thing about him, uh, was not well known until about a century later, and actually is a is a process that continues until today. His um, sense of obligation to his descendants apparently had its limitations. Either that, or he just had such a restless intellect that he could not be slowed down. Because when the great physicist James Clerk Maxwell went through his went through uh, Cavendish's writings, almost a century later. He was astounded to find that Cavendish was uh, that had had done groundbreaking work in many other fields decades ahead of the people who later got credit for it. Unpublished, completely unpublished. In the 1780s, a French scientist named Jacques Charles, for example, discovered what we still call Charles's law—a very basic gas law, which says that when you expand a gas, it uh, increases. And here's how much. Here's how much its volume increases relative to a temperature increase. Um, Cavendish had done that earlier. In 1785, um, Coulomb's law was discovered um, about electrostatics. It turned out that that was part of a series of discoveries that Cavendish had made about the properties of conductivity much earlier. In the 1790s, a scientist named Richter discovered the law of reciprocal proportions which is basically the whole mathematical undergirding of chemistry. You know, it's what a chemist would call stoichiometry. These different um, uh, chemical compounds and elements combine in even numbers, and because of that, you can tell what's actually happening on the atomic level. Mm. Um, apparently, Cavendish had been working on that during his lifetime earlier. In 1801, Dalton's law of partial pressures, how much the pressures of gas change when two different gases are combined— Cavendish had already done it. 1827, uh, Ohm's law relating current, voltage, and resistance. 
the foundation for a whole bunch of modern knowledge about electricity. Cavendish had done that during his lifetime. Many years prior. Very recently, I think in the 21st century, it was discovered that Cavendish had done a lot of work on what he called fixed heat or the mechanical theory of heat. And this is work that had not been analyzed with an eye toward, uh, toward thermodynamics ever. And scientists looking at his work very recently have thought this was the only person of his time who understood thermodynamics, you know, a, scientist, a science that would not exist for almost another century. And this is just stuff he was doing home alone because he was playing his own ballgame by his own rules at a level that no other thinker was doing. Why did he not publish this stuff? Why did he not advance it? He, it was just secondary to what he was working on, or did he recognize its import? Is that evident in his writing? We'd have to speculate, you know, because his shyness makes it impossible. His, you know, his shyness is the key problem that makes him kind of unknowable. Right. Um, people writing about him at the time or shortly thereafter who remembered him just kind of wrote about, you know, the, the cryptic mystery of his personality. Uh, and, you know, nobody ever saw the notes in time to ask him, Hey, what are, did you just not see the, you know, a, a person of intellect of his caliber must have seen the implications of some of this stuff. I mean, if I had to guess, it would be some mixture of, I mean, it would be some, something about his, his neuro, his neuro atypicality. Mm-hmm. What do we, what, what's the word That's, for that? I think that a, works. A neurotypicality. Where do you put the A? I think neuroatypicality is how, how we're going to coin it here for the for the omnibus. You put the A wherever you like. I, but I think it should have a, a, a an extra L. <laughs> Neuroatypicality. Oh right, yeah. you need a, a Soviet style. L. Yeah. Um, but know, he, but I, he, he, I wonder about I wonder how much the implications of work then becomes a. a, a a flight of the mind that requires metaphor and a kind of literary sort of progression to to see that to put your insights into context. You mean? Yeah, that 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 if yeah. you're working within a very literal context of like what is a gas, but to discover thermodynamics and be able to, in effect, tell the story to yourself of how that could become a like a field or how it would apply to things far flung. Maybe that's a limitation. Maybe he had the, you know, the kind of laser like focus and ability to make unusual connections that we, you know, associate with that kind of a savant. Right. Um, to say like, but this to, is but true, but how, in, how does it relate to what I'm working on? Right. You rather know, maybe, than say like, this is it. Yeah, maybe he did not see the real world implications because of his, some, you know, some of his um, isolation from the way most people think. Yeah, or, or it could just be just restlessness. You know, this is a guy who his amazing mind never stopped working, and it was just, oh, hey, look, these are whole numbers. There's something here. On, you know, onto the next thing. Yeah, um, because he's not following the same linear train of thought that that a more ordinary mind might. Oh, this is the thing about neural atypicality is, is, um, we try to, we always try to interpret it by virtue of assuming that neurotypicality Here, is the Here's the, the normal standard. good way to do stuff. Yeah, yeah right. And so, that's, there's a real limitation to that, especially when it's the atypical people that are pushing the frontiers. And I, you know, it just occurred to me now that, um, it's interesting to imagine what happens to somebody like Henry Cavendish if he was not born into a wealthy, educated, aristocratic family. Because clearly, you know, the same year he was born, there are probably hundreds of other babies born in England with um, a mind with some of the t- same tendency towards savantism. But he would have been in a very forgiving little bubble that could see past his oddities and understand the value of what he could contribute. And that would not be true of a bunch of working class kids of his period. Right. Well, and, and, and into a world where, I mean, the aristocratic culture has a lot of eccentricity as a result of, uh, sure, you know. Uh, <laughs> not having to do what anybody says or right. uh, genetic oddities. <laughs> genetic oddities. So there would have been, you know, there would have been a tendency to say like, well, he's first and foremost the Duke. So so we accommodate his his needs rather than the other way around. And, uh, well, it makes me think that it's a very hopeful for today, you know, in a world where in theory, a lot more people with unusual minds 
are being understood a little better and have some of the, um, you know, the kind of consideration that somebody like Cavendish would have been automatically given, especially once they can produce interesting or good work. Um, you know, m- maybe now it won't be one in a hundred that actually gets to be a savant. Well, it's weird. You, you, the internet has always promised to turn the world into a meritocracy, but it keeps kind of failing to do that. And now we have the problem of there being so much noise. There are so many people publishing their theories. How, again, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? Um, Especially in a time when it appears that these kind of, you know, these unusual wheat mines maybe are, 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 are propagating. Are there more of them than there used to be? Or are we just seeing more of them? than there used to be. It's not really clear, but right. you know, it's possible we're speaking to a future civilization where um, you know, that kind of remarkable ability has become the norm and is not even commented on anymore. Instead they have a they have they, what they call the spectrum would be for people with our understanding of sociality. <laughs> oh, that poor kid. He makes eye contact in the supermarket. Well and also one of the weird I mean the weird things that we have no yet history of exploring is how much does outsiderdom, how much does mm. a, a culture that does not accommodate you actually propel you? And as we're... That might be true in the arts. Do you think it's true in science? I wonder. Huh. I mean, it, 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 it's certainly true in the arts. But as we, you know, as we normalize the fringe, do we actually lose the power of, um, of working within the pressure of discrimination? I agree. Society needs to work to provide enough normies to surround every um, gifted savant yeah. that they kind of feel the uh, the onus of, of difference and responsibility on them to do crazy stuff. We should put every person with a with a, a, a slightly divergent nature into a sports bar and make them do their work sitting at a high table with you know with a with people coming by going woo. And if we ever if we ever start to run short of normies because we're getting too many of these remarkable minds, we will right. need to invent robot normies or clone normies or clone them. Sure. Yeah, we just go to a Packers game and take like the fifty people closest to the field. Isn't that why you go to sports events anyway to scrape DNA off people? <laughs> just to get get normie normie DNA to make your make your clone army. Could you lift your cheese head for a second? <laughs> I need a hair with a follicle. And that concludes Henry Cavendish, entry 197.jb2825, certificate number 47447 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that, well, surely the impossibility that social media still exists in your era in any form, it is, um, it is like a self-defeating organism, right? It's a, it's a thing that is... Ba- Built to kill itself. Well, we thought that about, you know, the nuclear age, too, and we got out of it. So who You're knows? Right. You're right. Uh, maybe there will be a SALT two treaty about social media. Yeah, who's the equivalent of this, the Soviet guy that sees a flock of geese and decides not to launch the missiles? Is there right. somebody like that who chooses not to, to release the meme that would have <laughs> would have killed the entire... You know unit? what, Ken? Maybe it's me. Uh, you can find... The Omnibus Project, at Omnibus Project. Ken is out there, at Ken Jennings. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, you can mail us actual things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What do you got over there, Ken? I'm actually opening mail right now. Um, John, uh, dear John and Ken, uh, a listener named Mr. Wacky... Hi, Mr. Wacky. Uh, remember is you mentioning hipster light roast. And I don't remember what your thoughts were about light roast, but Mr. Wacky agrees with them. Oh, I do not like light roast. I prefer a darker roast, honestly. And as a result, he must have remembered that, and he sent you black gold holding... <laughs> Texas tea! <laughs> <laughs> that is? Uh, it seems like you can't get darker than black gold when it comes to see dark roast coffee. And what's great is... It's in a coffee can, not quite a Folgers coffee can, but it, it's. Not. I thought when I opened it, I thought it was going to be like government cheese. Black gold, a velvety smooth blend with notes of dark chocolate, toasted hazelnut, and red apple. I believe 
that I will I, like I didn't this. realize we were doing this with coffee now, that we were talking about their oaky or floral notes or whatever. Yeah, I'm afraid so. How, well, I mean, how, how long have you been living in Seattle? Yeah, I was about to say, that, it's probably like, that's a mid-90s uh, innovation probably, right? So this was a gift just for me? You didn't get your own can of black gold? I guess you probably were like, I love Ethiopian roast. He sent me this instead, a wad of cash. Wait a no, minute. I'm sure, uh, he did stick in a wad of cash, but I'm, we'll, we'll split it 50 Is that right? He, he gave us... You gave us uh, eighty bucks. He gave us, yeah. I guess it's easier than Patreon. Oh, I thanks. And I, this is, I think, really for me, a list of uh, a, a sheaf of Betty Crocker budget casserole recipe cards. That does seem like something that it's going to get made at your house and not mine. Do you want to make some chicken Waikiki Beach? With no, this, I, I don't want pineapple in my food. This tempting, sweet and pungent recipe comes from our newest state, John, Hawaii. Hawaii. Delicious. What else? Are there stews? Yeah, there's bologna biscuits with vegetables. Do you, do you like uh, cooking up bologna? In that a, in is a, such a Mormon food. In a I can't dish. even stand it. How about some plantation ham pie? Not just not just delicious, but problematic. Hmm. Nope, that doesn't look good at all. It looks like maybe a cinnamon roll that has. That's raw uh, pork. Oh, it's parsley in the. It's bisquick and parsley, and then you serve it with. Plantation ham pie not pictured, I think. Nope, nope. Keep trying. Um, what do we got here? Is there here? a beef bourguignon by any chance? Tuna chow mein casserole. Nope. Don't want it. <laughs> pizza potatoes. No. Now, John, two things I know about you. You love pizza yes. and you love potatoes. No. <laughs> How about Frank and bean bake? This wow. is This is just like the... The funny thing is these are all copyright 1971. And if you told me this was like 1958... I would totally believe you. I mean, if, if this all feels like it could show up at, at Thanksgiving dinner. Salmon noodles Romanoff. Whoa. <laughs> Not where I'm going to put my delicious salmon. Have you ever just been eating uh, like stroganoff and thought, why isn't there a can of salmon in here? <laughs> here we go. Do you like hamburger? Yeah. Do you like pie? Yes. I've got some good news for you. Hamburger pie. Oh, but that's mashed potatoes on the top. It's just shepherd's. Yeah, it's shepherd's pie with like um, instant... Um, instant potatoes With on top. I see a little string of peas. It's a thing where they're bragging about how bad their ingredients are. Like, it, it doesn't say um, mash some potatoes. It really says use potato buds instant puffs. Use instant minced onion. It's like we're in a new scientific age and now we have improved food to the degree that you don't have to use real food anymore. Wow. Every one of those sounds terrible. Thank you, Mr. Wacky. And I don't even know what's in this box. Uh, I, I see some scientific glassware, so. This is from Amelia? Possibly Amelia Bedelia? Hello, Amelia. They told her to run home, and she ran home. I, uh, I, I dated a girl named Amelia, who then went on to uh, found uh, Shout Your Abortion. Oh, nice. I doubt this is from her. Uh, probably not, or she would mention that. Yeah, she probably would have just sent it to me directly. She did watercolor this lovely postcard. Look at that. That's very psychedelic. And then, uh, there's so much going on here. This is like a a treasure hunt. Then a hand-typed letter explaining the postcard that she made while noodling around with Norwegian decorative art. Do you recognize the typewriter? It looks, it's, it's IBM Selectric Era. Yeah. But I don't think it's... It's not a manual typewriter. No, it's not. Um, but she has gone in and put the circles over the A's in her Norwegian words. So good job. Um, she she actually has worked with the with the with some of the Indian tribes we discussed in the wampum episode because she's a New England archaeologist. What? I love uh, Futurelings. This is fantastic. And Very she much. sent us a quahog from the Cape and Martha's Vineyard with the purple shell inside. Oh, wait. She sent us each one. I get, oh, we each get a quahog, and yours is a cherry stone clam, but was eaten with a spritz of lemon. Uh Uh-huh. I see. Yeah, you don't want to send somebody a live clam in the mail. No. Tucked into each shell are two pieces of chipping debris, a byproduct of stone tool manufacture. Did you know that archaeologists actually keep the evidence? The shards. That somebody was making something there? That's cool. That is super cool. She also sent me a book called Science Made Stupid. Um, which just sounds perfect for me. Uh-huh. Oh, whatever her um, 84-year-old's father electric typewriter is, it does have the erasable ribbon because I can see a, a, a correction here. So, but you don't think it's a typewriter uh, built for Norwegian writing? You think she went back and did the... the it little... looks like she went back and put a degree sign over the A. Oh. Uh, and you get a vintage hook that she spotted at a thrift store. Like like for someone missing their hand? 
She also said a lot. <laughs> I assume a coat hook. She also, it's, it's decor. She also sent along a Japanese onsen bath salt packet. She knows you like baths and yes. hopes you are not sensitive to odors. Oh, and she even sent Mindy something. My wife gets herbal tea. Also some bit of honeys and licorice toffee because she must have been at her at her aged father's place to use his typewriter. So I love this care package. Bit of honey and licorice toffees for all. Now, we have been getting uh, these kind of eclectic pack- packages lately, and we didn't... You know, it used to be rare that we would get five gifts in a box, but now it seems to be increasingly the norm. It's really up the ante, and if if people ever think of just sending us one thing, we're going to be like, well, you know, Amelia sent us. Show me the hook. I don't have the hook. Here are the, um... Oh, yeah, hold up the Here are the shards in the clamshell. Shards in the clamshell. Isn't that one of the, um... A Mighty Wind song? <laughs> I was going to say, oh, look at that. Okay, I'm opening say your... shaving a haircut. Oh, so now I see why the purple <laughs> shell of the Quahog is so much more prized, because most of this shell is white. The purple is just a, just a ring around the outside. Oh, interesting. So it is... It's rare even among the clams. Your Swedish brass hook got a bit of honey uh, caught in it in sending. I opened it up and it already had a bit of honey caught on the end of the hook. It's made by Smedbo. Smedbo makes all the best brass hooks. These crazy shows. And they sponsor the show now. So let me just say the lasting beauty of Smedbo quality brass is easily maintained (laughs) by wiping with a soft, damp cloth. And if you use code OMNIBUS on (laughs) Smedbo.com... Isn't that fantastic? That is fantastic. Enjoy your you. enjoy your hook. Bit of honey. Thank you, Amelia. That's a that's a dynamite hook, quite frankly. I also wanted to mention this is funny, the um what is the couple's name? J- Jim and Kathy, I believe, sent us a copy of a Lara Ingalls Wilder style book set in a post apocalyptic future. And the funny thing is they are not the first people to send us this book. <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna um I st- we still enjoy it because now John and I each have a copy. But I think because we have talked about Lara Ingalls Wilder on the show and the post-apocalyptic future. Uh, Nothing goes better. Nobody can resist sending us the only book that combines zombie attacks with the Ingalls daughters. Thank you so much, uh, Jim and Kathy. I, I want to just point out that Smedbo are uh, the purveyors to his majesty, the king of Sweden. So, do you think the King of Sweden to this day needs an official purveyor of brass fit, fit, fittings? Well, I, I, on the back here also is uh, is written in pencil 1986. So maybe Sm- the Smedbo, maybe in 86 the king. I of bet his, his Majesty just goes to IKEA now. Yeah, and it's like I need a six pack of Smedbos. We we need to ask Cab Calloway. Uh, well, I should remind people that uh, Omnibus is a listener-supported show, and your contribution to the production and uh, distribution of this show, uh, there's a lot of of breakage as we send it out, and that costs money. Yeah, I mean, how many of these gold records are going to actually make it into the ground? Uh, You can support the show with your uh, generous financial contribution to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. That's patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. It'll be discovered long after our death. Our genius will be discovered posthumously like Henry Cavendish. Mm -hmm. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.